Hey there. Welcome to episode 21 of Tell Me a True Crime Story. I'm your host, Holly. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope that you and your family are happy, healthy, and together forever. Do you have a case suggestion for me? If so, please send me an email and let me know what case you'd like to hear me cover. My email is Holly's tell me podcast at gmail.com. And that's Holly with a Y. Holly's tell me podcast at gmail.com. Please follow the podcast and tell your friends and family about it. Also follow the podcast on social media. Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok are at Tell Me a True Crime Story. Thank you again for being here. Big, big hugs to all of you. Now, let me tell you a true crime story. Today's episode is called End of Watch, May 19th, 1998, and this is part two. If you haven't already, go back and listen to part one now, then come back here for part two. We left off in part one with the shootings of Tampa police detectives Ricky Childers and Randy Bell by Hank Earl Carr. After Hank Earl Carr cold-bloodedly murdered detectives Childers and Bell on that exit ramp to Florabraska Avenue, he grabbed his Norinco SKS semi-automatic rifle out of the trunk of the detective's car and hijacked a Pet Boys truck, a white 1997 Ford Ranger. He quickly put gas in it, then drove straight to his mom's house, which was nearby. He came in the back door, and through tears, he told his mom that the shooting of little Joey was an accident. According to an article in the Tampa Bay Times, he grabbed his mom and held her to him. His last words to her were, quote, Mama, I got to go now. I love you. Kiss me. You'll never see my face alive again, end quote. Hank Earl Carr then sped north on Interstate 275, then north on Interstate 75 toward Pasco County. He wanted to make it to Ohio to see his young daughter. Along the way, Hank Earl Carr shot at law enforcement officials and innocent people, and law enforcement officials shot back at him. At approximately 2.30 p.m. and 25 miles north of Tampa on I-75 northbound, 20-year-old Tim Bain from Tampa and a University of South Florida college student was on his way to work at his valet job at a resort hotel when he saw a white truck and a Florida State Trooper fly past. That trooper was 23-year-old rookie State Trooper James Brad Crooks. The Tampa Bay Times reported that a Florida Department of Law Enforcement investigative report said that Trooper Crooks was ordered by his supervisor to keep a distance from Hank Earl Carr and not to try to stop him alone. But the stolen white truck suddenly slammed on its brakes and stopped on the exit ramp to Wesley Chapel, just south of State Road 54. Trooper Crooks stopped behind him. The witness, Tim Bain, and other drivers were backed up on the exit ramp behind the trooper and the white pickup. Then Tim Bain heard a gunshot and glass shattering. Then he heard another gunshot and more glass shattering. Hank Earl Carr had just ambushed Trooper Crooks and shot him twice in the head, once through the front windshield and once through the driver's side window. Trooper Crooks hadn't even had time to pull his gun or put his cruiser into park. 
He died with his 9mm Beretta service weapon still in its holster, only nine months after graduating from the Florida Highway Patrol Training Academy. Another witness that day, an eyewitness to the shooting of Trooper Crooks, Dwight Hopkins, was headed north on I-75 as he approached the exit for State Road 54. A Florida State Trooper came up behind him and flashed his headlights, signaling him to move out of the way. It was Trooper Crooks, and he was following Hank Earl Carr in the white pet boy's truck. When Hank Earl Carr and Trooper Crooks stopped in the traffic on the exit ramp and Trooper Crooks pulled behind Hank Earl Carr's stolen truck, Dwight White Hopkins was going to drive around them. He thought the trooper was conducting a routine routine traffic stop, but then a man jumped out of the Pet Boys truck with a rifle in hand. He walked toward the patrol car, aimed it, and fired. The shot shattered the front and rear windshields of the police cruiser, sending shards of glass all over Dwight Hopkins' front windshield. Then the man with the rifle went to the driver's side window of the police cruiser and fired another shot. Dwight Hopkins acted on impulse and gunned his truck toward the gunman as he ran back to his truck. The gunman jumped in the truck and slammed the door just before Dwight Hopkins rammed his truck into the side of the gunman's. The gunman sped off and Dwight Hopkins chased him for a time. The gunman then trained his rifle on Dwight Hopkins but didn't fire and raced his truck back onto I-75 northbound. At the same time, the witness the college student, Tim Bain, jumped out of his car and noticed the trooper's cruiser rolling down the exit ramp. He tried to reach in and put it in park, but it kept rolling, so he had to jump inside and slam on the brakes. Tim Bain said that he'll always remember Trooper Crook's face. He said it was like something you see in the movies. He tried to talk to the state trooper, saying, Sir, you okay? But Trooper Crook's was gone. A passing truck driver stopped and reached into Trooper Crook's patrol car and grabbed the CB radio and screamed, Officer down! Officer down! Into it! As Hank Earl Carr sped north on I-75, cops chased him. Pasco County Sheriff's deputies joined the pursuit at approximately 2.42 p.m. One of these deputies was Pasco County Sheriff's Deputy James Campbell. Deputy Campbell had been very close to the scene where Trooper Crooks had been killed, and he picked up the chase just after the cold-blooded murder of Trooper Crooks. However, he was unaware at that point that the trooper had been murdered. As he chased Hank Earl Carr at speeds between 90 and 100 miles per hour, Hank Earl Carr opened the sliding rear windows of the stolen truck and fired on Deputy Campbell. Three shots from Hank Earl Carr's assault rifle came through Deputy Campbell's front windshield as he pursued Hank Earl Carr. The deputy ducked down behind the dashboard. Even so, Deputy Campbell was hit by bullet and glass fragments in his neck, chest, collarbone, and arm. He fell back, but still continued the chase. He was later treated at Dade City Hospital, and even after treatment, glass shards remained lodged near nerves in his arm. Pasco County Sheriff's Lieutenant Bruce Schmelter was also pursuing Hank Earl Carr. He, too, was shot at by him. Lieutenant Bruce Schmelter told the Tampa Bay Times that he almost took a hit through the head. He said that one of the bullets fired at him narrowly missed him when he leaned out of the window to return fire at Hank Earl Carr. His police cruiser took bullets through its windshield and to its radiator. His cruiser then became disabled and broke down. Following Hank Earl Carr from the sky was a sheriff's helicopter, which Hank Earl Carr also shot at. 
the helicopter pilot, Hernando County Sheriff's Department Sergeant Tom Nolan, wanted to be able to relay more information to officers that were in pursuit of Hank Earl Carr. Therefore, he took the helicopter lower in order to get a better look at Hank Earl Carr and what he was doing. He never thought that he would aim and fire at him, but that's just what he did, and he hit the helicopter. The bullet went through the floorboard near the pilot, almost hitting his knee and chin, but fortunately, he was not injured. That bullet exited out the roof of the helicopter. Another bullet had struck and ricocheted off of the helicopter main rotor. Meanwhile, a 65-year-old truck driver, Christopher Espinoza, was driving north on I-75 when he saw cops in the median and on the side of the interstate. Then he saw officers with long guns waiting at overpasses and a helicopter in the sky behind him. Then the truck driver behind him slammed on his brakes and a white pickup truck with only one headlight passed him on the left. Suddenly, his driver's side window shattered. His arm went numb and he felt blood oozing from it. When he looked over, he saw a man looking back at him through the rear window of that white pickup with a smug grin on his face. Christopher Espinoza was the second truck driver that Hank Earl shot at that day. Christopher Espinoza thought that Hank Earl Carr had shot at him and the other truck driver so that they'd lose control of their rigs and block the highway and the police that were pursuing him. When Hank Earl Carr crossed into Hernando County from Pasco County on I-75 at approximately 3 p.m., he ran over a device called a stinger or a spike strip that officers had placed across the interstate to puncture his tires. To avoid a roadblock that had been set up just ahead, Hank Earl Carr quickly pulled off of I-75, barreled down the exit ramp, and came to a stop in a ditch by a Shell gas station on State Road 50 in Brooksville, Florida. He popped off some rounds as he ran into the station. Inside, he took the 27-year-old pregnant gas station attendant, Stephanie Diane Kramer, hostage. Outside, more than 170 law enforcement officers from multiple different jurisdictions surrounded the Shell station. SWAT team members were lying in ditches opposite the store with their rifles aimed and ready. There were five news and law enforcement helicopters flying above the gas station. Inside the station, Hank Earl Carr told his hostage, Stephanie Kramer, to treat a gunshot wound that he'd, that he'd sustained during the police chase. He also wanted her to rub his arm. Around 4 p.m., the gas station's phone rang. On the line was AM 970 WFLA News Director Don Richards. He wanted to interview Hank Earl Carr, who was using the alias Joseph Lee Bennett, live on the radio. They talked for six minutes, in which Hank Earl Carr gave his version of the day's events, starting with the quote-unquote accidental shooting of Little Joey that morning. Don Richards later said of that interview that Hank Earl Carr was quote-unquote icily detached during the interview. Hank Earl Carr gave another inter interview, a brief one, to Amy Ellis, a reporter with the Tampa Bay St. Pete Times. Afterward, those media outlets took a lot of heat for those interviews. The hostage situation was a very delicate, sensitive one, and many thought it was unethical for members of the media to call the suspect and interfere with police business. 
Law enforcement had a command post set up at the Days Inn near the Shell Station. Initially, when they tried to make contact with Hank Earl Carr by phone, they couldn't reach him. In addition to talking on the phone to the two news media outlets, Hank Earl Carr made a call to his mom and another call to his ex-girlfriend in Ohio, who was the mother of their two kids, who were two and four years old at the time. So when police tried to call him on the phone, they repeatedly got a busy signal. Other times, he would answer, then hang up. They had to get him on the line and talking. An article in the Tampa Tribune reported that negotiators got fed up with not being able to reach Hank Earl Carr by phone, so they got the local telephone company to change the phone number for the Shell gas station and to set it up so that no outgoing calls could be made. Negotiators then finally made contact with Hank Earl Carr, and he demanded to speak with his quote-unquote wife, who was really just his girlfriend, Bernice Bowen. Remember, she was the mom of little Joey, who had been shot and killed earlier that day. A Tampa Police Department helicopter flew Bernice Bowen to Brooksville to the scene. She talked to Hank Earl Carr by phone and tried to convince him to release his hostage, Stephanie Kramer, and surrender. Hernando County Sheriff's Department's lead negotiator, Marissa Bell Kelly, also spoke to Hank Earl Carr by phone. Hank Earl Carr held Stephanie Kramer hostage for about four to four and a half hours that day. Just before 7.30 p.m., he released her by the front door. She ran in a crouched position to officers who quickly ushered her away to safety. Then, Hernando County Sheriff's deputies fired tear gas into the gas station. The Tampa Police Department bomb squad set off two breaching charges at the same time. Breaching charges are explosives designed to gain entry to locked doors or through walls or bunkers. One explosive breaching charge was used against the side wall and the other was used against the back wall of the gas station. When the tear gas cleared, a SWAT team entered the building. Near the back of the building, they found Hank Earl Carr dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. An autopsy was performed on little Joey and found no evidence that he'd been abused in the months leading up to his death. It was never actually determined if little Joey's shooting was accidental or intentional. Joey's sister Kayla was put into foster care. Then she was placed with a great aunt in Ohio. Her mom, Bernice Bowen, was eventually stripped of her parental rights to Kayla. At the age of eight, Kayla was legally adopted. Joey's funeral was held on June 1, 1998. He was buried in a small white casket with his favorite stuffed puppy. He was laid to rest at East Lawn Memorial Park in Reno, Ohio. At the end of May of 1998, the same month that Hank Earl Carr went on a rampage, Bernice Bowen, his girlfriend and mother of Joey and Kayla, was arrested and charged with child neglect for leaving her children around a convicted felon. In mid-June of 1998, she was charged with accessory after the fact to the first-degree murders of all three officers who were killed by Hank Earl Carr. Police said she could have saved lives if she'd revealed Hank Earl Carr's true identity and the fact that he'd always had a handcuff key on his person. In December, she was charged with being an accessory after the fact in her son Joey's death. In May of 1999, she was found guilty of all charges.
The next month, she pled guilty to child abuse for endangering Joey and Kayla. She was sentenced to 21 and a half years in prison for the accessory after the fact convictions and 15 years in prison for the child abuse. These sentences were to be served concurrently, which means at the same time. Bernice Bowen had always claimed she'd been a scapegoat in the shootings of the law enforcement officers, and she successfully appealed those convictions. In 2001, the Second District Court of Appeal ordered acquittals on Bernice Bowen's conviction in the death of Trooper Crooks and her son, Joey. The appeals court also ordered she receive a new trial for the other convictions. Bernice Bowen was retried, and in 2002, she was found guilty of two counts of accessory after the fact to first-degree murder in the deaths of Tampa Police Detectives Ricky Childers and Randy Bell. She was also found guilty of accessory after the fact in the escape of Hank Earl Carr. Florida state sentencing guidelines called for her to serve 6 to 11 years for her crimes. However, Hillsborough County Circuit Judge Ronald Ficarata said that her lies were so egregious that he instead sentenced her to 21 years behind bars. At 11.15 a.m. on Saturday, May 23, 1998, at the Tampa Convention Center, there was a joint funeral held for Detectives Ricky Joe Childers and Randy Scott Bell of the Tampa Police Department. On the landing of the Convention Center was a gurney, empty, save for two police caps. The two detectives' widows led a long line of family members into the service. They were ushered to their seats by uniformed officers. The fallen detectives' caskets were at the front of the room. The ten remaining members of their homicide squad were their pallbearers. A pianist played Wind Beneath My Wings in Amazing Grace. About 7,000 mourners attended their funeral that day. Thousands more listened or watched the funeral service broadcasted on radio and television. About 5,000 of the mourners in attendance were law enforcement officers from as far away as New York, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Minnesota, and Canada. Also there to honor the fallen heroes were paramedics, prison guards, and members of Highway Patrol, Border Patrol, and Marine Patrol. Minister Dan R. Dempsey of River Hills Church of God, Reverend Jerry Sweet of Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church, and Reverend Ken Witten of Idlewild Baptist Church all spoke at the service. Tampa Police Lieutenant George McNamara and Detective Sandy Noblet delivered touching eulogies. A four-man police honor guard that switched every 30 minutes stood watch over the two caskets that were draped in American flags. There were 24 memorial wreaths set out from family and friends of the detectives and various police agencies. After the service at the convention center, the funeral procession headed toward the cemetery. Motorcycle police escorted two black hearses driving side by side that carried the bodies of the detectives. The two black hearses were followed by 11 white motorcycles and hundreds of patrol cars with their lights flashing. Civilians got out of their cars that were stopped for the funeral procession and saluted or cried or placed their hands over their hearts. Thousands of people lined the route leading to the cemetery. They threw carnations and roses at the hearses as they rolled by. It took 30 minutes for the long procession to go by. 
At the cemetery, seven officers fired a 21-gun salute, firing their rifles three times each. After that, taps were played. Ten police helicopters passed in formation above. White-gloved men carefully and ceremoniously folded the American flags that had been draped on the two caskets and handed them to the detectives' widows. Then came the ritual of their final calls. A dispatcher called over the radio for the two officers to respond. When they didn't, bagpipes played Amazing Grace. Just as they worked side by side in life and died side by side, the detectives were buried side by side at Myrtle Hill Memorial Park in Tampa. Both detectives had played softball and loved NASCAR. They'd kept in touch with crime victims for years, and for victims and their families who couldn't afford it, they would bring them Thanksgiving turkeys and Christmas trees during the holidays. Detective Ricky Joe Childers, nicknamed Chili, was an 18-year veteran of the Tampa Police Department. He had a wife, two grown children, four dogs, and two cats. He'd go to work early on Friday mornings to feed pigeons outside the police department. His end of watch was Tuesday, May 19, 1998. He was 46 years old. Detective Randy Scott Bell was born in Iowa and was a 20-year veteran of the Tampa Police Department. He had a wife and five kids. He was a workaholic and would already have two pots of coffee brewed by the time anyone else arrived at the station. He watered the plants at the office. His end of watch was Tuesday, May 19, 1998. He was 44 years old. Trooper Brad Crooks was raised on a cattle farm in rural Clewiston, Florida. He attended the University of South Florida, majoring in criminology. He signed up for an internship program, which allowed students to get college credit and a job as a state trooper for completing the police academy. He was so determined to get into law enforcement that he dropped more than 60 pounds in order to pass the police academy fitness test. He graduated from the police academy with near-perfect scores on his state certification test. He graduated from the academy just months before his murder, and he and his fiancée were to be married in six short months from when he was killed. Thousands attended his funeral in an unair-conditioned auditorium in the town where he grew up. Cops from near and far came to bid farewell to the young rookie trooper. They were all dressed in their Class A dress uniforms in honor of their fellow brother in blue. The Tampa Bay Times reported about his final call at his funeral service. The formal on-air announcement was broadcasted throughout the John Boy Auditorium in Clewiston. Quote, a dispatcher's voice came over a loudspeaker and called the trooper's name and ID tag. Brooksville, number 1777, followed by a pause, then another code, 107. Trooper James B. Crooks is out of service, the voice said. Trooper Brad Crooks' end of watch was Tuesday, May 19, 1998. He was 23 years old. There are memorial markers for detectives Ricky Childers and Randy Bell located at the site where they lost their lives, the Flora-Braska Avenue exit ramp off of I-275 southbound. Also, their names are engraved on the police memorial in front of the Tampa Police Headquarters. Detective Randy Bell's daughter is now on the Tampa Police Force.
A portion of State Road 54 that runs through Wesley Chapel, Florida, is named Trooper James Brad Crooks Highway in memory of Florida State Trooper Brad Crooks. Bernice Bowen served her time as Florida Department of Corrections inmate number T17226. While in prison, she earned her high school diploma, took parental education classes, and worked in the prison law library. She was released from custody at the age of 42 on October 16, 2016, and went to live with her parents in East Canton, Ohio. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of Tell Me a True Crime Story. Please follow the podcast and tell your friends, coworkers, and family about it, and share a link to the podcast with someone who loves true crime stories. Follow and share the podcast on social media too. Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok are at Tell Me a True Crime Story. And it would really help me out a ton if you guys would write a review for the podcast on Apple Podcast or give it a five-star rating on Spotify or or anywhere else that you can review or rate podcast. So thank you again for being here. I truly, truly appreciate each and every one of you guys. Please join me again for episode 22 when I'll tell you another true crime story. Big hugs to all of you. Bye-bye.